Good morning, Maple Grove. Uh, question. Do you believe, I, I mean, do you really believe what you just sang? That worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Holy, holy is He. And are you filled with wonder? Awestruck wonder at the mention of His name? Jesus, your name is power, breath, and living water. Such a marvelous mystery. Jesus, we just stand in your presence today. Fill us with wonder at the mention of your name. Fill us with wonder at the truth of your scripture. Fill us with wonder at the beauty and power and majesty of your church. Jesus, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds and ears and spirit. We ask you to be here. Uh, we said we felt that you were here. And, and I pray that today you will move in us, move in our hearts, move in our minds. I pray that we believe that a miracle can happen now because your presence is here. Uh, that's all that is needed is your presence to create a miracle. And I just pray you move in a powerful way. And I, I just submit to you uh, my heart, my mind right now. I pray that you use it for your honor and your glory. May we be changed because we are here in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Imagine, are you imagining? Right? Imagine that you live in a country ruled by a cruel dictator. I mean, he controls the army, he controls the government, he controls the media, he controls the economy. And it's a very subtle, but yet a very real kind of control. Now, everything that is done in this country is intended to keep you domesticated and compliant. But somehow, inside, you know that you're not free. And this cruel dictator, he uses his media to tell you things like, if you're overweight, you're not thin enough. If you're thin, you're not mas mas muscular enough. If you're, if you're conservative, you're not liberal enough. If you're muscular, you're not smart enough. If you're poor, you're not rich enough. If you're rich, you're not rich enough. If you're accomplished, you're not accomplished enough. He uses his media to tell you that you don't wear the right clothes. You don't drive the right car. You don't live in the right neighborhood. You don't go to the right school. You don't have the right career. And this cruel dictator tells you that you need more money. To get more money, you need a better economy. To get a better economy, you need different political parties. To get different political parties, you need better opinions. And to get better opinions, you need to listen to the media more. If you listen to the media more, you hear lots of ads that keep reminding you that you're not thin, muscular, smart, knowledgeable, popular, rich, cool, or good enough. Bottom line, they tell you that you don't measure up. And he keeps you in this little rat race of domestication simply by keeping you busy. But you're start, starting to get tired of this. And you wonder if there's a better way of living. You wonder if there's another place to live. And every once in a while, you meet these visitors from another country who seem to be really happy. I mean, it's a real happiness and not the pseudo-plastic, fake, painted on Facebook, Instagram kind of happiness that you're used to. And you wonder why they would ever come to your country for vacation since your country is so depressing and they seem so happy. And you notice that whenever these vacationers come, they tell everyone they meet about their country. And you never paid attention, but you start to listen. 
And as you do, you're totally in awe. I mean, life in their country seems incredible, almost too good to be true. So you decide to sneak over for a visit to check things out for yourself. And since your borders are tightly controlled, you have to go through the mountains and on foot. You have to travel at night and sleep by day. Take several days, but eventually you get there. And you visit this other country. You walk the streets, you grab a coffee at a sidewalk cafe, you sit on park benches, you watch, you observe, and you listen, and you're amazed by what you see. I mean, things are so different than in your country. In this country, people don't compete. They serve. They don't hate. They love. In this country, they don't look out for number one. They look out for each other. In this country, they don't use their tongue to tear people down. Instead, they use it to build people up and to encourage. In this country, they don't point fingers. They lend hands. They don't hold grudges. They forgive quickly and freely. In this country, they don't assume the worst about others. Instead, they assume the best. And people live their lives focused not on getting, but on giving, not on themselves, but on other people. And in this country, they don't tell you that you're not smart enough, rich enough, pretty enough, talented enough, or good enough. Instead, they tell you that you are loved and accepted, precious and wonderful, just as you are. And there's a sense of reverence in the air. I mean, you can feel it. And it feels so much better than the sense of haste and rush and hurry and competition and cheapness that you're used to. And you notice that in this country, that the people who are last in your country... The handicapped, the minorities, the uneducated, the sick, the elderly, the poor, the young, the old, the orphans, the less fortunate, are not only not treated badly, but they're treated with unusual respect and honor, almost as if they're the most important people of all. And as you travel secretly through this country, you you feel a sense of excitement because powerful and compelling visions of another way to live begin to flood your heart and mind. And yet you realize that there's a whole lot you don't know. But there's no doubt in your mind that you feel more at home in this new country than you ever felt in your own. I mean, you feel like you found a precious treasure hidden in the field. In fact, you're so excited that you think I'd sell everything just in order to live here. And so you decide that you're going to immigrate to this new country and live there. So you go back home, you get your affairs in order, and in just a few days you walk out the door of your old way of life for the very last time, wondering what you will have to do to live in this new country. And feeling for the first time in years hopeful about the days ahead. This morning we are continuing our our series, Becoming the Church He Intended. And, And that title really does sum it up. It sums up what we're hoping and praying to accomplish during this series for us to become, for us who meet at 3210 Prophet Road to become the church that he intends for us to be. Or at the very least, figure out what that is and then go after it with everything that we have. And implicit in that statement is the fact that we are not yet the church that we are supposed to be. And I don't say that to to beat us down, but to move us to look forward to all the things that he intends for us to become in him. And it makes sense, right? I mean, why would we want or think that we could be anything other than what the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth intends. Upon this rock, that he is a Christ, the son of the living God, I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. 
You don't have to raise your hand or answer out loud. Answer in your heart. That's usually the best place to answer. Yeah. Does anyone out there want to see this church, Maple Grove, become the church that Jesus intends? Remember I said to do this requires, I keep hitting this, but it's true, requires us to be open to what God says about his church. There's a high likelihood that some of what we say in this series, maybe even today, we won't, you won't like, you won't agree with, and it'll make you feel uncomfortable. You've got to be honest. We've got to be honest about where we really are, collectively and individually. We've got to be humble, willing to admit where we're wrong, where we've been wrong, and spend more time focusing on ourselves rather than other people and how they have fallen short. have got to be willing to change and do whatever it takes and be ready for the enemy to come at us because plain church does not threaten him at all. But being the church is a serious threat to him. Get it? And so far in the series, we've been unpacking several of the church's statements. And it's really important that we do that, that we see what the Word of God says about the church, what the church is. Because if we don't, we'll wind up defining the church in a wrong, incomplete, inaccurate, or self-centered way. And when we do that... We will miss out and fail to see the beauty, the power, the value, the glory, the greatness, the seriousness, the significance, the wonder that is his church. Get it? Good. And so becoming the church intense begins with seeing what the Bible says the church is. And so far we've seen that the church is Christ. It belongs to Jesus. The church is the called out ones. The church is the hope of the world. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the flock of God. The church is the family of God. The church is the bride of Christ. And last time I stood up here, we talked about how the church is the temple of God, where God's spirit dwells. And we talked about, like, that's really important. And like when God's spirit and the Old Testament descended upon his presence, descended upon the temple and filled that temple. We said it would never cross our minds to grab a sledgehammer and beat against the church. I so much wanted to hit some drywall and just say, hey, let me beat on the church a little bit here, right? But, you know, that wouldn't be good. And we said, like Francis Chan talks about in the book, Letters to the Church, that when you and I are critical about the church in negative ways, when we gossip, when we slander, when we say things about other Christians behind their back, right, that we are in effect taking a sledgehammer to the church because the church, us together, is where his spirit dwells. Amen? Amen. And, and, and I just failed to have us do something that day. And I, walking around the lake that Sunday, I thought, man, I should have done this. And I'm going to give everybody in this room just, a, you know, 30 seconds in their heart to repent. If you've ever in your life, Christian walk, slandered a brother or sister, said dispersion things about the bride of Christ, criticized rather than help your leaders, repent. And you know what? I know I have to repent. And so just take a minute to repent because this is this temple. Let's pray. Jesus, Father, Spirit, I repent. Sometimes I rationalize it in my 
frustration, I have taken a sledgehammer and hit your church. And there's no justification for ever speaking bad about a church or other people. I've done that. And I'm sorry. And I ask for your forgiveness. And I ask for your spirit to smack me in the head anytime and every time I would do such a thing to something you love so dearly. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you've missed any of these conversations, I really encourage you to check them out online. You can go on Facebook. You can download them. We have a podcast. And I just want to say one more thing before we dive into the main topic of the day is that you know, the church is extremely valuable to Jesus. Paul says this, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. And he did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that but holy and blameless and Paul says in Acts chapter 20 be on guard for yourselves for all the flock the Holy Spirit has appointed you to oversee the shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood worthy is the lamb that was slain and part of the reason he was slain was what to establish his church I mean do you see the church that way is that worthy? You know, Jesus gave himself up for the church. He purchased the church with his blood. That's how we need to see the church. The church is so worthy to Jesus. And I do want to mention this, that if you prayed for God to forgive you because you hit his church with a sledgehammer, guess what he did? He forgave you. Isn't that cool? And I just like, are you serious? Right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and forgive us of all our sins and unrighteousness. All we got to do is own up. Say, we're sorry, God. I screwed up. Shouldn't have done that. I don't want to do it again. And God goes, cool, let's move on. Let's move on. I love his grace and his mercy. All right. Church is a promised messianic kingdom. I want to attack it by answering four questions. Question number one, what is the kingdom? Now, now we don't use the word kingdom very much these days, unless we're talking about the United Kingdom or the Magic Kingdom, right? In each of these cases, kingdom is a specific geographical place defined by its borders. So in English, kingdom primarily refers to a place. However, the emphasis in the Greek word for kingdom is not on a place, but rather on the rule or the reign of God. In fact, some Bible translators actually translate the Greek phrase kingdom of God as the reign of God or the rule of God. Not a place. Jesus made that clear in Luke chapter 17 when he said this. Once I haven't been asked by the Pharisees where the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is within you. And perhaps the best answer to the question, what is the kingdom, is found in 14 words that many of us have prayed many times, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And and you see in Hebrew poetry, many times the second line, it it tells the truth of the first line in a slightly different way. Like Proverbs 10.9 says, the man of integrity walks securely, 
but he who takes crooked paths will be found out. Same truth, different angle. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. A perverse man stirs up dissension, and a gossip separates close friends. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what is Jesus teaching us? He's, he's teaching us that the kingdom is the place where God's will is done. Done how? As it is done in heaven. And how is God's will done in heaven? God's will in heaven is always done, instantly done, constantly done, completely done, humbly done, and joyfully done. In fact, the only, only guy who tried to not do God's will in heaven got what? Got booted out along with a few guys with him. That would be Satan. So what is the kingdom? The rule or reign of God within the hearts of men. And, and I'm going to have to say that, but I'm going to, your kingdom come, your will be done here as it is in heaven. And when you say here, I'm going to have you repeat this after me. When you say here, I want you to point here. I want you to point to your heart, okay? You guys ready to do this? Your kingdom come. Okay, I, I did a really bad job giving directions, didn't I? Hey, I'm getting old, okay? Just repeat right after me. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Here as it is in heaven. Amen. You get the point. That's what you're praying, not somewhere out there. Let's straighten out the world. Hey, let's straighten out ourselves first. Maybe that'd be a good idea. Now, why is the kingdom so important? You've heard me say countless times that the Bible central message, the dominant theme is the coming of Christ, the anointed one, God's Messiah, right? The Old Testament can summarize in this way, right? You know, the coming of Christ. The Gospels could be summarized this way, Christ is here. And the message of the rest of the New Testament is simply, Christ is coming again. Now, I understand everything we read and see in the Old Testament, from the promise in the garden until Mary held baby Jesus in her arms, is all about God preparing the world and his people for the Messiah's arrival. And when I say everything, I mean everything. From the calling of Abraham and Moses, the forming of the nation of Israel, uh, the giving of the law, the building of the temple, the sacrifice and the priesthood, the prophets and the kings, everything looked to, pointed to, and longed for the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom that he would bring. Which is why it should be no surprise that the kingdom was a central focus of Jesus' ministry. He taught about the kingdom, he told parables to describe the kingdom, and he came to establish the kingdom. He couldn't stop talking about the kingdom. Used the word over a hundred times. In fact, Jesus talked more about the kingdom than he talked about faith, love, and prayer added together. The kingdom was always on his mind, always on his lips, from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry. After 40 days of fasting, praying, and battling the evil one in the wilderness, Jesus returned to Galilee ready to do what he came to do. We read in Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That word means it's here and it's available. A few verses down in Matthew, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news, uh, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. In Luke 4, 43, Jesus couldn't have made the importance of the kingdom any clearer. 
I must preach the good news of the kingdom, the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And in Luke 9, 27, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Not taste death equals, it's getting here soon, and some of you will be there when it arrives, right? And when did the kingdom arrive? It arrived on the day of Pentecost, right? Which, by the way, is next Sunday. That's pretty cool, right? It's cool to me because each message I've tried to do, I hadn't finished. And guess what my message was already planned to be after I did the church is? It's about the birth of the church. So we'll be talking about the birth of the church on Pentecost Sunday, which is pretty exciting. And then during the final week of his ministry, Jesus is still talking about the kingdom, at the temple with the people and Jewish leaders, with his 12 in the upper room, as he stood beaten bound before Pilate and the Jewish leaders. And, and what do you think his favorite topic was after the resurrection? Acts chapter 1, verse 3. After suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about what? The kingdom of God. Why did he talk so much about the kingdom? Like, like, why was it the center of his ministry and the focal point, one of the focal points of the gospel? Well, because the kingdom is what God, through his prophets, told the people was coming. You see, for centuries, prophets like Isaiah and Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, told God's people that one day the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom and set things right once and for all. One day the true king would come and defeat their enemies, return them from exile, and help them to become the people that God always intended them to be. For centuries, through the prophets, God had been praying his people for the coming of the kingdom. However, they misunderstood what was actually coming. And as a result, they were looking for a, a kingdom that was about a physical place, Jerusalem, rather than a spiritual reality of God's reign in the hearts of men. See, they're looking for a physical kingdom that would overthrow the Roman Empire. And then one day, Jesus, a 30-year-old blue-collar carpenter, shows up from a hick town and says, Hey, guys, the kingdom is here. I I know it's not what you expected. I know you wanted me to overthrow Rome, and I'm not going to do that. In fact, I'm going to let them kill me. I I know you were hoping for Messiah who would take take things backwards, back to the 12 tribes of, of Israel and Jerusalem. But I have... My sight's set so much higher than that. I'm not just interested in a city or a country. Instead, I want my kingdom to come into every place on the face of this planet. I want to make disciples of all nations. Again, I know it's not what you're expecting or wanted, but it's here, the kingdom. You've been waiting for us arrive, and I'm so pumped and excited about it. Maple Grove, the church is a promised messianic kingdom. I understand the church and the message she has to bring is what it's all about. The, the church is mankind's last hope before Jesus returns. And listen, before Jesus returned to the Father, he wanted to make sure his guys understood the importance of the kingdom and what was going on. And Luke ends his gospel with the, these words. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, that's in the Psalms. That he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. 
The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Maple Grove, that's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2. The kingdom, the church is born, and then we see the good news being preached throughout the world, beginning in Jerusalem. Again, when it came to the church being the promised messianic kingdom, Jesus wanted to make sure that his guys got it. And they did. Peter, in his second recorded sermon in Acts chapter 3, a few days after he preached that sermon of the day of Pentecost, and everybody is just wondering, hey, what is all this stuff going on that we see? He says in Acts 3 verse 22, indeed, beginning with Samuel, the last of the judges and the, the first of the prophets, Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. Like, I understand, the spotlight of Old Testament prophecy was on the church, was on the kingdom. In Acts chapter 8, we see the message of the kingdom at the forefront again. Acts 8, verse 12. Now the people believe Philip's message of the good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. As a result, many men and women were were baptized. Final words in the book of Acts, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul wrote about the kingdom. He says this, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Hebrew writer said this, but you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn. We should be grateful that we were given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In this kingdom, we please God by worshiping him and showing him great honor and respect. And as John opens up his book of Revelation, he says this, He has made us a kingdom of priests for God, his Father, all glory and power to him forever and ever. The church is a promised messianic kingdom. The place where God's reign and rule in the hearts of men begins. Now we know that one day when Christ cracks open the sky and returns, the rule of God in the hearts of men will be complete and will experience it in all its fullness. But listen, in a very real way, the kingdom of God is already here. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus came not merely to save us from our sins and punch our ticket to heaven, as needed and awesome as those things are, but he came to establish the kingdom, his church. I understand the arrival of Jesus has made it possible for the reign of God to become a living reality in the lives of his people like never before. Because through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God has unleashed a new age full of new and endless possibilities for his people. Yes, Jesus, our king, came to establish the kingdom. He came to get back what was lost in the Garden of Eden. You see, ever since the Garden, earth has been the main battlefield of two opposing kingdoms. But that's not the whole story. For you see, once the world fell into enemy hands, God determined to win it back at all costs. That meant sending... The message through his prophets and his kings and his priests and his people. Uh, that meant rising up an entire nation through whom he would bless the world. Uh, that meant rescuing from bondage, parting waters, crumbling walls, defeating enemies, conquering nations. And ultimately that meant that he himself had to enter the conflict in order to reclaim the world from Satan. I, I love how C.S. Lewis 
describes the world in his book, Mere Christianity. Lewis says that the earth is enemy-occupied territory. And he goes on to say that Christianity is a story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Understand, the forgiveness of sins was made available through Jesus' spilt blood on Calvary, and the restoring of the image of God in us is now within reach because when Jesus established his kingdom, he sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of those who would surrender their lives to him. And listen, God living in us is a really big deal. It's what helps establish the kingdom in our hearts and in our minds. Okay, here's the deal. Because the Spirit of God lives inside of us, we now have all the power we will ever need to live lives that are radically different than the world. Amen, right? Peter said his divine power has given us everything that we need to live lives where God's kingdom and God's will can be lived out in our lives in some mind-blowing ways. To live lives that are consumed with Treating others the way that we want to be treated. Lives that are consumed with serving and not being served. Uh, Lives that are consumed with loving one another just as Jesus loved us. Lives that are consumed with opening the eyes of the blind, feeding those who are hungry, setting free the captives. Lives that are consumed with healing hearts that are wounded, bringing light into the darkness. Lives that are consumed with washing the feet of this lost and darkened world. Uh, Lives that are consumed with sharing the gospel with those who have yet to taste the awesome flavor of mercy and grace and acceptance. Lives that are consumed with giving hope to the hopeless, comfort to the hurting, and belonging to the lonely. Uh, Lives who are consumed with leveraging all our resources, time, talent, and treasure, not to advance our own kingdom, but to advance his Lives that are consumed with breaking down all the barriers in our world that separate people, right? So we're not separated by race and ethnicity and and age and economics and gender. But we're one. Lives that are consumed with showing the world the beauty of oneness, the beauty of community. I, I mean, can you see why Jesus and disciples were excited about this? I don't know if you know, but Peter says in 1 Peter that, that what you and I get to be a part of, what, what you and I yawn about and get bored over, it says that the prophets of old and the angels in heaven, check it out, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, it says the prophets of old and the angels, man, would love to get in what we're a part of every day. You know, they're, they're like, man, I wish I could be a part. I'm writing about it, but I don't get to be in it. I'm looking down on it, but I don't get to be in it. The church is a promised messianic kingdom intended to offer believers a vision of life that is so beautiful, so bold, so creative, so loving, so genuine, so authentic, so dynamic that it blows their minds, takes their breath away such that they simply cannot resist. And they're therefore added to the kingdom and are saved. I love these words from N.T. Wright. Our task is image-bearing, God-loving, spirit-filled Christians following Christ Our task is image-bearing, God-loving, spirit-filled Christians following Christ and shaping our world is to announce redemption to a world that has discovered its fallenness, to announce healing to a world that has discovered its brokenness, to proclaim love and trust to a world that knows only exploitation, fear, and suspicion. 
Our task is to announce in deed and word that the exile is over, to act boldly in God's world and the power of the Spirit. The church is a promised messianic kingdom. Next question, how, how do we get in on it? Answer that question, I don't want to go back to the story I told in the beginning about leaving your old country and immigrating to a new one. Now, just think about what you have experienced. You've experienced what we might call repentance. Because you had a way of life that was part of the rat race. You were part of the system. And so you believed them when they said, you got to be thinner, richer, prettier, and cooler. You believed all that junk. But then you started to doubt. You began to rethink your life. This isn't the way I I want to live anymore. This isn't working. This is not producing anything of real or lasting value. And because you have visited this other country, not only are you starting to experience repentance, but you're starting to experience faith. You see, you have a belief and a confidence that if you could just live in that other country, your life would be so much better. Repentance and faith, that's part of what it takes to get in on this new country. So you cross over secretly as you did before, traveling at night and on foot, and you come to one of the border towns and you go to the mayor's office. And you say, hey, can I, can I be accepted here as a refugee? Like, do you have a, a, a refugee camp that I can go to? I'm escaping from this other country. I, I'm tired of living under that totalitarian government. I'm tired of being told what to wear, how to act, what to buy, how to look. I'm tired of being told that I'm not good enough and I don't measure up. I cannot live under that oppressive rule any longer. And Mayor says, with a grin, no, I'm sorry. I, I cannot send you to a refugee camp because... We don't have any. You see, in this country, you can only be a full-fledged citizen. And we would love for you to become one. And you, my friend, if you're ready to leave your old way of living behind, you're welcome here. And then you ask as you pull out an envelope, you say, here, I've emptied out all my, my bank accounts, sold all my property. How much do I have to pay? And the mayor says, keep your money. You don't pay anything to be a citizen here. It's free. It's a gift. And at those words, your jaws drop, your heart starts racing, your eyes stretch wide open, and you say, are you kidding me? I want to be a part of this country. Then you ask, do do I have to pass a test? Is there some kind of citizenship ceremony? Well, he says, all who become citizens here go through something that we call baptism. It's a It's a picture of what God does in our lives when we surrender to him. It's washing away of the old and the 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 bringing on of the new. It's like being born all over again. And you say, I want to do that. And so they baptize you, and now you're seen as a citizen of that country. And you walk out of the mayor's office, and you start walking the streets, and someone shows you where to live, and they tell you that they're going to help you learn how to live in this country so you can enjoy it in all its fullness. And you just breathe, and there's something in the air. It's like you're breathing in freedom and peace and joy and hope and life. And you feel both the power and the desire to to live new, to live better, to live the life you've always wanted to live. Not only that, you begin to make plans to go back and visit your old country. Tell others about the good news of this new land. Brothers and sisters, this is the kingdom of God. This is where Jesus invites us to live. In a new and better country. In a new and better reality. Paul writes, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. 
And Jesus made it pretty clear that to get on the kingdom, we've got to do three things. Repent, believe, and be born of water and of spirit. Mark 1, we read this. Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. In John 3, 5, he says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. And repentance is saying, you know, my old way of doing things, that was wrong. I I need to lay down my agenda for life and pick up God's agenda. Repentance is saying, I no longer want to be the boss and lord of my own life. I haven't been doing so good in the first place. And believe, you believe in Jesus, who he is and what he did. Believe that we are sinners. Believe that forgiveness can be found only in him. Then Jesus said, we're born of water and of spirit. That's He's talking about baptism. He's talking about this event as a picture of the very thing that saves us, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That divine event that involves both water and the Spirit. I mean, think about it. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, what do you have? Water and the Spirit. When Peter preached that great sermon on the day of Pentecost, he said, repent to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have water and Spirit. And if if baptism is something you have not done, I think Pentecost Sunday would be a great day. I think the day would be even a greater day. (laughs) You know, and and if you have questions about it, you know, there's a study, you go on our website, uh, uh, there's a study you can do on there. It takes you through scripture, right? Because it doesn't matter what I say about baptism, right? It's not my opinion that counts. It's what God's word says, right? And so I just encourage you to read that. And, and finally, the final question, what is the kingdom of God worth? And when we see the church for what she really is, family of God, temple of God, flock of God, promised messianic kingdom, we'll see that it is extremely valuable. Jesus told two parables. Stick, stick with me, we're about done. King of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the king of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So what is the kingdom worth? It's worth everything. It's worth everything we have and everything we are. And listen, during the last 2,000 years, when men and women heard about the kingdom and understood it, during the last 2,000 years, when men and women heard about the kingdom, understood it. They devoted their hearts to it. They sacrificed their possessions for it. They sacrificed their careers for it. They sacrificed their homes for it. They lived for it and they died for it and they did it with joy. They did it laughing, weeping, and dancing, unable to believe the good fortune that the kingdom of God was open to them. Kind of like what I think these believers are feeling in this picture right here. I don't know if you know this. I just saw this, read some stuff on this week. One of the places the church has grown the fastest is, is right there in Iran. And that's some, that's some brothers and sisters being born in, in Iran. Do you know that there's been more conversions of Muslims to Christianity in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries? And... and, and in 1979, I mean, these, these numbers, they're crazy. There were like 500 
Christians in Iran that came from a Muslim background. Now they estimate it's in the hundreds of thousands, maybe a million. I mean, the church is growing there, and, and they're seeing the value of it, right? And they're having to pay a cost for it, right? No one's throwing a party for them coming to Christ. They go, hey, this is worth it. Yeah, well, we may lose our jobs. We may face persecution, but are you kidding me? I get to be a part of God's kid- kingdom. I'm a citizen of heaven. Yeah, one day the kingdom will come in all its fullness. One day there will be no other kingdoms. One day all other kingdoms will fall, and there will only be one kingdom, God's kingdom, and we'll experience in all its fullness That day's coming, but for now, Jesus our King has established little outposts of the kingdom, little pinpoints of light that hold out the promise of better things to come, little pinpoints of light where people show the world, their neighbors, their coworkers, a different and better way to live, where they see it and they go, wow, I didn't know a life could be lived like that. I didn't know a marriage could be like that. I didn't know friends could be like that. I didn't know people could actually love like that. And listen, as you and I let the king reign over our mind and our hearts as we surrender our wills, give up control, deny ourselves, forgive those who hurt us, go to second mile, serve the poor and less fortunate, turn the other cheek, let our light shine, break down walls of division as we follow Jesus and lean on the Spirit, we help to establish another outpost of the kingdom. Sabotaging the plans of Satan and redirecting the forevers of people. You see, what we do here, what you do as a Jesus follower has eternal consequences. I I don't know if anything else in my life really does. But what we do What you do as a believer has consequences that will echo into eternity. It matters. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity. Holy Spirit, you say that when we we don't know what to pray, that somehow you can find the words to pray for us. And Holy Spirit, I pray that if I had somehow misrepresented or made it hard to understand the beauty and power of your kingdom, your church. Holy Spirit, make that clear through your word. And Jesus, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that we get to live in a a new and better reality. We thank you for the forgiveness that is ours because of Christ. We thank you that we are citizens of a much better place. In Jesus' name, amen.